Alright, here we go. Take one. <laughs> you know, I love my country and what this country stands for. I truly appreciate what I have today. You know, in 2002, when my journey into this recovery began, I would never have imagined that what I have today was even possible in having. And becoming who I am was even someone that I would ever be able to find. You know, I am at peace with things, and I believe it probably stems from my ability to just roll with the punches. You know, I appreciate the freedom that I have, but you know, freedom does not come free. And freedom, it requires sacrifice. You know, for those that don't feel that you have all of the freedom that you desire all of the time, think about this quote. And I read this from a sergeant in the military, and he said to the recruits in boot camp, he said, think of it as you temporarily giving up some of your freedoms so that others can have theirs. What are you sacrificing? You know, John F. Kennedy, whether you like him or not, in his inaugural address, he inspired people to see the importance of civic action and public service. You know, he said that famous saying, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And this challenged every American to contribute in some way to the public good. Now, please stay tuned for my guest today. And this is a man of sacrifice. His name is Richard Kaufman, and I am honored to thank him for his service to us. I'll be right back. Hey, this is Eric McCoy, and everybody should know what we're doing, which is getting high while clean. You know, Memorial Day was about a week ago, um, you know, where we honor the men and women who died while serving in the United States military. Uh, just for an informative purpose, it was actually originally known as Decoration Day, and it originated in the years following the Civil War and became an official federal holiday in 1971. You know, the military should have a place in all of our hearts. In November, we have Veterans Day, where we celebrate those that have and are fighting for our freedom. But, you know, it's really discouraging, as so many Americans, I believe, take this for granted. You know, during my tumultuous teenage years, I had an epiphany to join the military because I really had no goals, no vision for my life at all. And I was actually traveling from Oregon back to California with some friends. And the other group that I was with had mechanical failure in their 1960s Volkswagen bus. <laughs> and I was approached by some naval recruiters, but I blew them off. Now, once I reached California, I decided that I was going to do it. And my father was a radio man on a destroyer during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. And I wanted to join the Navy. And it didn't work out the way that I hoped because at the time they were very picky on who could join. And having been arrested five times by the age that I was at, active duty was not possible. 
Now, my recruiter told me that once I finished boot camp in Great Lakes, Illinois, in my school, and I joined the CBs, the construction battalions, which was in Port Wyneme, California, that I could request active duty at that point. So I did. But he was wrong. <laughs> my military career was very short-lived. And actually, and honestly, I don't like saying this, I could say that I actually absconded from my monthly duty because I returned to that same life that I was living on drugs, running around with the Grateful Dead. Anybody know my story? And I would not have passed a drug test. I was able to slide through, luckily, with a medical discharge because I did have a grand mal seizure in 94 that I was able to use the reason I that I did not make it. But I gained an enormous appreciation for the military. You know, our military watches out for us every day. And when something goes wrong, they're ready. In 2001, and so many of us remember the day of September 11th, we were attacked. We had about 2,900 people that died between the planes, the bystanders, the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. And that's actually 593 more people that died than the last major attack that was on our land, which was December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. So in 2001, George W. Bush, our president at that time, issued Operation Enduring Freedom, which were airstrikes targeting Al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan. October 7th, 2001, this began and actually lasted until December 31st, 2014. Now today, we have an opportunity to meet one of the individuals whose mission was to support Operation Enduring Freedom. He served in our military and was medically retired after 23 years of service. And he also fits well with this podcast as he has struggled with substance abuse, struggled with homelessness and alcohol abuse. He is the author of a book titled Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. And he is also the host of a podcast called Success, Your Why Powers Your How. He's also known as the Comeback Coach. Richard Kaufman, I want to thank you for coming on our show today, and, and I want to thank you for the service to our country. Oh, thank you guys for having me. And, uh, you know, anybody, time anybody ever says thank you for my service, I feel, I feel kind of weird because it was just, you know, what I, what I did. So, but thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for having this show because a lot of times this is not a sexy subject. This is not one of those motivational subjects you know and sometimes we get really deep on what we talk about so thank you for having the guts to have a show like this yeah but and you know you kind of touched on it in the very beginning if we can just help one person you know yeah. and yeah. i think that's but i do want to start real quick and i i want to ask you a question and uh you know the name of your podcast success your why powers your how now, I want to say I read that at first, and I had to actually think about it for a minute <laughs> to actually make sense to me. Um, tell me a little bit. What's that name mean for you? Well, I got two podcasts now. Um, now I have that podcast, and I have uh, our, uh, my podcast is called Vertical Momentum, and we're actually in the top five podcasts in the world right now, top 5%. Um, 
But I started it because I was listening to a friend of mine's podcast. His name is Ed Milet, and he has millions of followers. And I just heard him say that saying. And then I, I thought to myself, it's like, once you figure out your why, everything else will come to you. But if you never figure out your why, you'll never get a chance to figure out your how. And that's how it all it all came about. Yeah, because it all begins with motivation, right? Yeah. I mean, if you don't have a reason to do something, you know, like when we were getting high, we all we had that motivation to get high. So, you know, we we did it. And then eventually we got motivation to get clean. But if we never figured out why we wanted to get clean, we would never stay clean. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you got on your shirt and I also read um, you're pushing the Today I Decide campaign. Oh, well, what it was, was um, I was part of a, a veteran summit a, a while ago, and I had to give my speech, which I did. And for me, if you guys don't know, I'm 80% blind, so I got to use this because um, I got to use the Mr. McGlue glass to be able to see. But in order for me to get my, my interview on there, I had to put it on YouTube so they can download it. And all of a sudden, my interview went viral um it was about the day i attempted suicide on memorial day 2012 and everybody was like oh my god oh my god we need to have a summit we need to have we need to have get together so we can have um people let know that it's okay not to be it's okay to be not to be okay so we we decided to throw our own mental health summit which was april 3rd you can find it on um on social media at today i decide hashtag so we had 12 different speakers. It was a free event. And I think we're going to continue doing it um, statewide and then nationwide eventually. So, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, which I'm sure is obviously something that you really target, you know, obviously can occur following a life-threatening event, obviously like military combat, you know, natural disasters, terrorist incidents, serious accidents, um, you know, violent personal assaults like rape. Many, you know, most survivors of trauma do return to normal, given a little time, but some people obviously don't. They have stress reactions that obviously don't go away on their own or even get worse over time. And, you know, people who suffer and, I, and working in the field that I work in, obviously we do deal with this as well, you know, that people that suffer from PTSD often suffer, you know, obviously nightmares, flashbacks, difficulty sleeping, feeling emotionally numb. Um, and these symptoms can obviously seriously impact a person's life. Um, and this, this is something you're dealing with, right? With people helping them through PTSD. Yeah. Um, because my theory is, I mean, I guys, I only have a ninth grade education, so, um, I'm no professional, but I've interviewed over 300 professionals in this field. And I figured out that when an adult acts out, it's usually because of trauma that happened between the ages of three and 13. Then you add alcohol and drugs to the mix. And then you add war to the mix sometimes and you have a perfect storm. And there is no book to tell you how to get out of the perfect storm unless somebody else has been in there and they can reach down and help pull you out. Now you're, you're a comeback coach. <laughs> the comeback coach. What does that mean? Uh, well, because people, if people know my story, if you guys follow me at all, 
Um, I was I was in the health and fitness industry for 30 years. I worked with players from NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, WWE, helped them come back from injuries. And then I had to come back from myself from drug addiction, alcoholism, homelessness, PTSD, a traumatic brain injury, and now blindness. So if anybody knows how to come back, it's me. And somebody, it was uh, Gary Vaynerchuk when me and him got together and had lunch. And uh, he's like, bro, you're like the comeback coach. And there, and, and there it started all from that day with just having lunch with Gary V at, uh, at his father's uh, wine store here in New Jersey. And that's where it all started. And how much of your, uh, you know, the issues you're doing, you got obviously depression, you attempted suicide, um, even your blindness um, was a result of the military. Uh, well, the PTSD, the blindness, that most of that was from the military. But, you know, if people know in my, in my life, they know um, I'm, I'm, I, I love this book by Grant Cardone. Um, it's called TEDx, 10X. And he says, uh, once you take ownership of your life and realize that everything's your fault, then you can learn how to be free. So I take ownership of everything that's ever happened to me. And uh, I don't blame anything on anybody. Because like my, my mentor, Ed Milet, says, you know, things don't happen to you. They happen for you. And everything is a teachable moment. So uh, I, I really, I'm more into post-traumatic growth now than in post-traumatic stress. Yeah, the key to, you know, control that we take over our life is self-responsibility. I mean, and that's, that really is, you know, when, when I found that real freedom in my life was when I did take responsibility, you know, for things. Um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a question. I, I'm, I was thinking about this, you know, if we go back to the Vietnam War, and the Vietnam War claimed the lives of, you know, more than 58,000 Americans and wounded more than 150,000. And, you know, for the men that served in Vietnam and they survived, they had a lot of horrors coming home, right? Some say they were insulted, they were spit on, you know, Vietnam vets were met with none of the respect and the praise of you know, even the sacrifice that was bestowed upon World Wars II, you know, what we call the greatest generation, right? And, uh, you know, as that war kind of went on and became obviously increasingly hopeless, um, the military personnel, you know, put through this kind of re revolving door of service, you know, came to represent something obviously a lot of Americans would rather not accept, which was defeat. You know, obviously we lost that war. Um, and um, it was probably what the first major lost war abroad in American history. And obviously all of that stuff changed, you know, obviously when we had, you know, the Gulf War, um, you know, there was big celebrations, you know, the successful campaigns and, and, um, but one of the things that really transpired obviously during the Vietnam War was obviously very, very poor benefits for the vets. And what does that look like today? I mean, have we seen a, a drastic change in that? Or is there still a lot of, I guess, disservice to our to our military? Well, I mean, honestly, like, um, as you were alluding to um, earlier, you know, we were talking about 
Um, the 9-11 was the day that my whole life changed, my whole trajectory of my life changed. But where we're sitting right now, um, I'm actually overlooking where the Twin Towers once stood. So it's very close to home. But, you know, in New Jersey, like I said, where I'm from, the healthcare system, the VA has been very, very good to me. Um, I don't have any complaints the way they treat me. But you go to certain VAs, you know, a couple of years ago, there were veterans actually committing suicide in the parking lots of the VAs. But I think now, I mean, and, and, I, and I don't get political, so I'm not going to go there. But, um, you know, now I think in the last five, six years, there, things are getting better. Um, there's more money, more funding being um, more funding being going to the VA and more VAs are starting to hire more veterans. Because a veteran like me and you, we could sit and talk. We can go out for a cup of coffee and we can just shoot the shit no matter, you know, what branches we were in. We have something in common. And a lot of vets will only open up to another vet. So I think that's where the, the, the changes will happen when they start hiring more veterans. Because more veteran will open up more to another veteran. Just like an alcoholic, like when we go to a step meeting or we go to a speaker meeting, you know, we, we feel free. We feel like we're home. Same thing when you go to a VA and you're actually sitting down talking to another vet. You, your guard goes down and you can just talk open and honestly. So I think these are things are on the up, I think. Now, your substance abuse, um, that began when you were in the military? No, um, I had my first drink um, at 12, full-blown alcoholic by the age of 13. And when I joined the military... Uh, I was an alcoholic already. And then since I found out that they did, they couldn't um, do a, a catch you on a urinalysis for taking LSD or acid. I became an acid head for, for two and a half years after that. Um, so not only did I became an alcoholic, but I was a drug addict. And that's what they eventually kicked me out for, for being an addict and alcoholic. And that was, uh, you had served two years, right? Yep, two and a half years from 86 to 88 until my uncle Sam decided he didn't want me as a nephew and he booted my ass out. <laughs> and then you joined the uh, National Guard, right? Yeah, because uh, I, I got into some legal problems. Um, I was looking at five years for grand larceny, but my parents and my, my uh, aunt and uncle came up to my rescue and bailed me out and all that stuff. And my uncle made a smart ass comment. He said, you know what? I never knew. I knew you would never be a military man. You don't have what it takes. And it kind of just ate at me. It ate at me and ate at me. And then when I, I got sober, like I said, in, in 89, um, I decided I wanted to get back in the military. So I had to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. And I, I did get back in the military in uh, 90 or 91. I, I don't, it's been so long. And uh, I got back in the National Guard and I was due to be thrown out again. Um, I wasn't drinking, but I was still um, I was I was a dry drunk. I just wasn't drinking. And they were going to throw me out for the second time at the at the end of September 11th. I mean, September 2001. But September 11th came and it changed my whole my whole trajectory of my life. So. And then you were in the military for, you said like 20, or you were in the National Guard for 20 years, is that? Yep, uh, 20 years. Um, 
after I got my head out of my butt. Um, for you know, I'm not trying not to curse, but um, after I got my head out of my butt, I uh, I got busted from E4 to E1. Uh, they decided to keep me, thank God. And uh, within four years, I became soldier of the year. I became a non-commissioned officer. And then I uh, st- stood in for another 20 years. That's great, man. And you've got, you were saying 30, how many years sober? 32 years as of January 2nd, 1989. That's great, man. That's fantastic. It's a lot one, of time. I was asking, day, why the hell did you do that? <laughs> one day at a time, brother, you know, and and unfortunately, you know, even though being clean this long, I still, I have to be very protective of my sobriety. You know, like I even have to be careful with, um, you know, if I go out and ha- order a salad, you know, because a lot of them has a red wine vinegar in it or something like that. So I got, I, I just try to be very careful of everything that I put in my mouth and um, p- things that I talk about. Like I, I have my own show and everybody's trying me to get me to sell sell their CD, CBD products. And I'm like, can't do it. I can't. I don't, you know, if, if I don't believe in something, I can't sell it. And if I don't use it, I can't sell it. So I, I'm turning down a lot of opportunities because, you know, if all of a sudden, you know, here I am 32 years, I've been everywhere and on, on, sp- on stages talking. And now all of a sudden I show up wearing a pot leaf hat and a shirt, you know, people are going to be like, uh, did he just go off the rails? So I, I, I got I got to worry about everything that I get involved with. Yeah, it might send the wrong message. And you know, and you never know who's watching you. Somebody might be struggling, and they be like, "Oh, if it's okay for him, it's okay for me." You know, and then they go down the wrong path, and I don't want to leave anybody down the wrong path. You you bring up a great point that. Um, and, and I do talk to clients about this too. I mean, you know, just the being very careful of what you take. I mean, I think it's huge. Um, I even, you know, I tell clients too, you know, if you go see a doctor, you know, um, make sure you know exactly what you're taking. Well, just, well, I had surgery on my eye and, and I, I go in and I tell, listen, I'm an addict. I said, like, I can't have any painkillers. I don't want it. Oh, and so the guy comes in. He's like, all right, we're going to give you fentanyl. I'm like, no, wait, hold on a second. You're not giving me fentanyl. You're not giving me anything that's can any have any. I'm not going back to day one. I'm not going back to 32 years because you do something stupid. So you got to even be careful when you're having surgeries and stuff like that. Yes. Yep. I've had, um, I've seen people, you know, go in and, and get, uh, you know, dental surgeries and they get on Vicodin and they're gone like that. Or like my cousin, God bless her heart. She'll make me a separate salad. She'll make sure that she'll put stuff that I can have on the side because she knows that there are certain things that, that I can't have. What do you do for your recovery? You have a 12 step program. You, you, uh, 12 step programs. I found, um, I'm on clubhouse. So they have a lot of sober rooms, a lot of so, a lot of sober meetings. Um, I used to go to a men's meeting here in New Jersey every Sunday for like eight years. And then one day I just sat there and I looked around. And I'm like, all right, all these guys are not drinking, but they ain't got jobs. They don't have a wife. They don't have a job career. They're broke. And I'm like, they just don't drink. I'm like, life, there's got to be more to life than just not drinking. So I, I, I kind of only go back there once in a while because 
you know, what's the sense of, you know, seeing all these old curmudgeon guys who just, oh, I didn't drink today. Yeah, but you don't have a job. You don't have a house. You don't have a car. All you do is don't drink. So is life worth living if you just don't drink and do nothing else? Yeah, I I kind of can relate to you a lot. I mean, I kind of went through the same thing with uh, I don't personally go to the 12-step program, 12-step meetings. I did it for a long time. I mean, I worked the steps. I went to meetings. I was you know, a real, real part of the 12-step program. And I reached a place where I kind of felt like it wasn't giving me anything else. You know, I kind of reached a place where just like you, you know, it was like, you know, I need more um, because this is all I'm getting here, you know? Um, and, and that's sort of where my, my mindset went. But then, you know, I tell people, you know, if you're, if you're looking to get sober, you're looking to get clean, um, definitely go to 12 step meetings because not following the 12 steps led me out of my house. Following the 12 steps got me back into a new house. Mm -hmm. So definitely if you're struggling, get to a program. Like I was 20 years old, my first meeting and I was scared and hungover, drinking nasty coffee, drink, eating nasty cookies, but it got me, it helped get me sober. There's no better support, uh, support group out there than the 12 step program. Yeah. You know, it's everywhere. I mean, that's the real benefit behind it is you can find it anywhere. You know, you could be in Japan and you go to a meet, you wouldn't understand them, but you'd be in a meeting with your people, right? <laughs> you know, then you got people that, you know, for some reason they can't get out of their house or whatever. Now they got AA meetings on zoom through, you know, uh, clubhouse. So there's no reason not to like when we were drug addicts, if it was raining out, we would be go to get our drugs. If it was snowing out, we were going to get our drugs. So you have to want it. You have to want to get clean as much as you used to want to get high or else you're never going to get clean. Yeah, you kind of need to want to get sober a little more than you want to get high. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's a big part is, you know, finding the thing that means more to you than that drug itself. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of it is mindset. You know, that's what I've been studying a lot. And for the last six weeks, I was diving deep into changing your mindset, changing your habits and changing your rituals. Because most people don't realize that everything that they do, 60% of the day is all done without you even thinking about it it's all habit so if you change your habits you change your rituals your life will change now i wanted to ask you on your blindness how did so where did that come from uh the first time i guess i was backing up a humvee and it was a young private uh, i think it was his first drill and it broke down so i had to pull it off the road and i was backing him up and instead of him hitting the brakes he hit the gas and ran over the whole right side of my body ran over my head and I had right at that moment, I had an ocular stroke in my left eye. So that's, it went uh, totally blind within uh, 10 days. And then because of having, when I was young, you know, um, and I, I quit drinking at such a young age. So I replaced uh, alcohol with sugar and I became a diabetic. And that's how the other eye went was from diabetes. But now, for some reason, you know, they say God works in you know, different play, different ways. My my good eye, my bad eye, somehow the retina got reattached, and now it's my good eye. So um, I'm able to see out of that a little bit more. I think with a couple more surgeries, I might be able to get back to maybe 
50% um, vision. Yeah, now people say, you know, when they lose their sight or they lose, do you, did you gain insight into other senses better? <laughs> oh, my hearing is uh, great. Um, that's why I love, uh, I found a passion interviewing people because now I can, like when I interview somebody, I could just shut my eyes and I can hang on every word that they say. Like sometimes when I'm interviewing somebody, my mind will actually count the, the times that they say a certain word. So my, it's become that in tune to, uh, to when I talk to people. So that's why I think I, I fell in love with interviewing people because I get to actually listen. Because there's a difference between listening and hearing. You know, even in my marriage and my relationships, you know, there's a difference between hearing your wife and actually putting your phone or your book down, looking her in the eyes and listening to your wife. Yeah, it's kind of the concept behind that act of listening, you know, where you really are engaged, you really listen, you catch the words that they're saying and the words they're not saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a lot of times, you know, when you're like a podcaster, like I did five interviews so far today. And uh, you just, when you're listening for the other person, you're not always thinking, what question am I going to ask? Because mm -hmm. you're listening to what they're actually saying. That's why I was talking to the guy, he wrote the book, um, Echo and Ramadi. We just interviewed him today. And we were talking about how sometimes it's better to listen to a movie than watch a movie because you'll get more out of the movie if you listen to it than if you actually watch it. Yeah, you kind of brought up the idea of, you know, kind of changing the way you see things, like changing your perspective a little bit, yeah. uh, you know, which for me is something that is very, very important. So I wrote a book, you know, titled uh, Pain, Failure, and Misery are the Stepping Stones to Success. And I have a whole chapter in there on, you know, the, the idea of thinking for ourselves and also, you know, the idea of, of our perception. You know, we don't describe the world we see, we see the world that we describe, and I think that idea is so powerful, you know, because how we view things and how we see things all come from our, our thoughts, all come from within us. Going back to responsibility, you know, that my feelings, you know, I'm responsible for my feelings. Um, you know, like words don't hurt. It's the meanings that we put behind the things that people say that actually hurt us, you know, and um and I like that. I like that idea because, I mean, it is really, you know, especially for people that have drug problems or alcohol problems, they live in a, in a kind of a fantasy world in a lot of ways. And, you know, part of, I think, recovery is where we start to ground ourselves. You know, that we start to, one of the things I always love to talk about is living consciously, you know, living with the respects of reality. You know, this is the real, this is real. Yeah. I mean, I definitely believe, uh, you know, somebody told me um, that self-awareness is an mf -er, you know, because once you become self-aware and you realize that everything from now on is your fault, then you have to change your mindset. And there's a part of your brain. Now, everybody says, well, I can't change my mind. You know, I can't change the way I am. I can't change the way my mind thinks. And, and, I, and this is something that somebody told, told me a while ago. There's a part of your brain, a very small part of your brain. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's in the, in the frontal cortex that like, you know, when you first buy, say if you buy a car and it's a blue Honda, as soon as you buy that blue Honda, all you see is blue Hondas. Mm -hmm. 
It's because your mind is actually searching out in your subconscious looking for it. So your life can become like your Facebook page. And I know people are like, is he on drugs? No, I'm not. But check this out. I did an experiment about six months ago when I was going through some depression. I went through my Facebook page and I started liking all the positive stuff and letting all the negative stuff go. From then, from about 30 days on, all Facebook showed me was positive stuff. So that's like your brain. Once you start looking for positive stuff, that's all you're going to see is the positive. You're not going to see the negative because your mind is just like that Facebook al algorithm. It shows you what you keep on constantly putting into it. Mm -hmm. I've done a exercise with people before and I'll, I always love doing this. I think I said this before on my podcast, but where I've done groups with clients and I would actually go around to each one of them and I would shake their hand and I would, I would say, okay, I'm going to say something to you. I want you to look right back at me and I want you to say the exact same thing. I wish you health and happiness. And then I'd go and they'd say it back. I wish you health and happiness. And I'd go around the entire group, you know, with me saying it, then them saying it back to me. And then I'd have them all get up and then I'd have them all do it to each other, you know. And the power behind that was amazing. I mean, people, you know, before the exercise, they were like, you know, I'd say, how are you guys doing? Uh, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm all right. Kind of, kind of down, I'm irritated, I'm frustrated. And that changed completely by the end of that group, you know, and, uh, and I think it's a little based on kind of what you're talking about, you know, that positive thought, positive speaking, good things we say, good things that we hear back really can play a lot into, into us feeling good. Well, like I'm reading a book right now. It's called um, From Homeless to Billionaire. And it was a gentleman and he just said the main things are he just changed the way he talked to himself. So he came out with five things that he he would say to himself every day, about 50 to 100 times a day. I'm whole today. Um, I'm happy today. I'm wealthy today. I'm healthy today. And he just kept on repeating those things until it got into the subconscious. And then that's when your mind will actually start thinking, okay, and attracting the things that you want. So if you keep whatever, I did a video the other day, you know, uh, so I do a video every uh, morning minute every day. And it, it was that garbage in garbage out, whatever you put in your mind is what you're going to get out of it. Like, for instance, if like for me, if I want to get amped up when I go to the gym, I'll put on Slipknot, you know, or, or, or I'll put on Tupac. So it's amazing how your mind can, will actually adjust to whatever you're listening to or the people that you have around. So sometimes you might not, you might have to cut some of the fat from, you know, the people that you have around you. If they're negative, they're going to try to keep holding you down. Yeah, you know, appreciation, which is something that I'm, you know, like when I, I look back on my past and, of course, back during my drug days, and, you know, I was negative. I was hateful. I hated everybody. You know, I was kind of a sociopath in, in that sense. I had no, you know, emotional connection with anybody. Um, and when I started that process of healing for myself, I remember, and I'd read this, um, you know, idea of appreciation, right? Appreciation is the strongest outbound form of love. It's the idea of giving of everything and asking for nothing. And they did studies on this and they actually found that your mind cannot be in the state of fear and appreciation at the same time. 
And so in that sense, appreciation can almost be the antidote to fear. And of course, fear being probably the greatest destroyer of happiness. And I think I, I've always thought about that. And that's something that became very important to me, you know, was looking at gratitude, looking at appreciation. I mean, all the things that, you know, in my life that I took for granted, going to the saying of, you know, you never really know what you have until you lose it, right? <laughs> and so maybe I can actually appreciate things without having to lose them, you know? And, uh, and that has changed my emotional stability drastically. You know, I mean, I can just appreciate, I got a house, I got a roof over my head. I got to appreciate that I can walk out in, into the sun and feel the sunlight. You know, I appreciate that I have grass. I appreciate I can smell the roses, you know, <laughs> I mean, just some of the most simple things that it feels good, you know, to appreciate it. And, you know, I think, you know, gratitude, I'm a big gratitude guy. Um, like when I wake up and before I go to bed at night, I, I thank God for, you know, just three things for that day, what I'm grateful for, whatever it is, you know, and if I wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, I'll just say a quick prayer and say, you know, Lord, I just want to say thank you for just keeping, keeping me alive today. And once you start living that attitude of gratitude, the world, whatever you call it, I call him God. He'll keep on, he'll give you more. Like, like if you're a parent, I'm a parent, I got three kids. If they appreciate and take care of what they give, what I give them, of course, I want to give them more. But if they start acting like spoiled brats and, and start, you know, acting like the world owes them something, I'm not going to give them any, anything else. So, I, and I think that's what the world, the universe does to us when we start appreciating what we have, you know, because even in the programs, it says you cannot. You cannot keep what you cannot give. You cannot give freely away. So I think once you live in an attitude of gratitude, life starts getting a lot, lot better, even financially. Yeah. Now you're a man of faith. I try. Uh, I know I fail. I fail him every day, but I, I try, and, and I realize that um, whenever I was at my deepest, darkest points, he always put somebody in my my way that they actually protected me. So that's, that's why I do what I do now. Yeah. It's kind of cool. The last uh, two podcasts I did before one was Anthony Torres, who was a, um, he was a drug addict, got clean, became a pastor of a church in New Mexico. Great, great guy. I really enjoyed it. And then Joe Potosi, you know, Joe. Joe's great people. I just had him on my show. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and he also is a, man of faith. And I think I'd read that somewhere. So that's why I kind of asked, asked that question, but I, I too, am. um, it, it's, it's a fight every day for me. Um, you know, that faith it's a struggle and I think it's a constant struggle. And I think it is for a lot of people, um, because I have a tendency of questioning too many things. <laughs> well, see, like me, I'm a big, I, I question everything. And then I'm like, you know what? I, sometimes you just have to accept it. I'm like, there's got to be something greater out there because I can't even see out of my eye. So if I can't figure that out, there's no way I can figure out the universe. So I realize that there's a God and I'm just not him. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was an important part for us to get out of addiction. You know, at, at the moment I decided I didn't want to play God anymore. <laughs> and yeah, I came to the, I came to a realization one day that, I was thinking, 
you know, because, uh, you know, you got all these people out there that are constantly arguing, you know, there is no God, you know, or the, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and I came to this realization, I was just thinking, like, how is it even possible for me to even, you know, truly understand that power? I mean, to understand the concept of God. I mean, I've got this small little fallible mind, <laughs> you know, that for me to even figure it out. And I am a man of faith today. I do believe in God, you know, which is a big change from when I was using drugs because I did not. Um, and that was something that, you know, has become very important in my life. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely can say I don't have perfect faith. <laughs> you know, but I realized, you know, because I was with my dad and he's uh, battling pancreatic cancer in South Carolina. And something just came over me one day and he said, I heard, I, I don't know, it was audible, it was inside me. It just said, son, just walk by faith, not by sight or feel. Mm. So just by faith, not how you're feeling, but let, everything's going to be okay. So, and, and that's something that's just stuck with me, you know, to walk by faith, not by sight or feel. Because sometimes the way we, our, our minds will lie to us. Oh, yeah. You know, always lie to us. So we have to realize sometimes, our, our, you know, just like people, if they lose a job or if they, they lose a business, our minds tell us that we're a failure. But people don't realize that failure is an event. It's not a person. So sometimes you don't have to, you don't listen to your mind sometimes. Yeah, through studies, they've said that the average human tells over 200 lies a day. <laughs> I remember originally seeing that. I was like, damn, that is crazy, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but then it started to make sense to me um, because, you know, they've identified over a hundred different forms of lying, you know? And so, I mean, think about, you know, all the times, you know, like even rationalizing, we justify, you know, exaggeration as a form of lying. You know, you just tell a story, make it a little bigger, right? And uh, to make yourself seem a little bit more than you really are, you know? Yeah. And I think addicts are a lot like that. We just, you know, we'll embellish, you know, we'll tell one of our friends, we went fishing and our fish was that big. At the end of the day, it's, the fish was that big. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Being humble. That is, that is a big key. You know, the, the idea of humility. Um, and that's, you know, something that I had to obviously work on a lot in my life, you know, was that idea of humility. That's something that I, I work on a lot. I work on being um, humble, you know, because a lot of people when I'm on podcasts, you know, they always ask you to ask, what else do you like to say to something? I always tell everybody, just stay humble and stay teachable, you know, do those two things and your life is you know, you can have an amazing life if you just do those two things and stay humble and stay teachable. Yeah, we all need to be, we all need to remain students. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's one of my sayings too, is I'm a teacher, but I'm also a student. And a lot of people don't realize, you know, I heard a statistic that like 50% of the people have never read a book after high school. Now, just think about it. now the top, top, CEOs in in the world average 60 books reading a year and they're the top earners in the world. So there's got to be something to it about learning. You know, yes. once you stop learning is when you stop dying. And I believe that readers are leaders. Yeah, I like that. That's great. So when you um 
So, so what all types of people do you work with? You work with people in the military, you work with anybody that's, that's uh, dealing with depression. Uh, I work with anybody that needs uh, a friend to have a cup of coffee with, uh, whether that's military, uh, first responders, um, civilians, teachers, authors. And now with the podcast, it just opened up everywhere to now I have everybody on my show and I've become friends with everybody. So anybody that needs help. And if I can't get you to help, because obviously, I'm, like I said, I'm only a ninth grade, uh, a, dro- a ninth grade dropout, but I've read over 5,000 books. So if I don't have an answer, I will get somebody for you that has the answer. I'm the guy that if you need somebody, I'm the guy that knows a guy. <laughs> and that's what I, I pride myself on is being that guy. Hey, call up Rich. If you need somebody, he'll find somebody for you. So that's what I do. I'm kind of like an intermediary in a lot of ways. Well, you've not only read 5, 000, over 5,000, you've also written a book, right? Yeah, I've written a book. It, it's, uh, it just hit number one uh, last, it was no, two weeks ago. On in uh, substance abuse category. Great. What is uh, so? What's the book? Um, is that a, a kind of an autobiography? It's called A Hero's Journey, which um, it and I explained to it that I'm no hero. And uh, how old are you? How old am I? Yeah, uh, I turned forty eight this year. Okay, so we're pretty close. But we, I know that the original Superman for me was uh, Christopher Reeves. Um, and he actually has the opening quote in the book that was given to me by his wife after he passed away about being a hero. So, and my, the reason why I got a lot of backlash for people that didn't read the book about the, about the, the title, but when they read the book, they're like, okay, now I get it. Um, cause I believe that the heroes were the people that ran into the buildings on nine 11 while everybody else was running away. That was, that's what a true hero is. So, but it's about my story. And at every, at the end of every chapter, it has uh, a learning, a teaching point, but the last two chapters are um, what addiction looks like, not what you think it looks like and what depression really is and not what you think it is. So as the last two chapters are more, are very, are very teaching for people that might have f- family members that are struggling with addiction, depression, and stuff like that. And it's only 99 cents, and 100% of the proceeds go to help veterans that are struggling with PTSD and depression. So I make no money off all the T-shirts. Um, my When we did our uh, mental health summit, um, it was free. Nobody paid anything. So everything I do is all to give back and pay it forward. Now your your experience, you were Operation Enduring Freedom. Yeah. Um, after after two thousand, what were what were you involved with in that? That was when uh, uh, right around around two about two thousand three was when we started um, really uh, shooting a lot of missiles and tomahawks into Afghanistan, and they were worried that they were going to um, terrorists were going to come on on. Uh, American soil and start attacking the military bases. So we were charged with um, making sure the military bases were safe. Everybody on base was safe, but we were also, it was called a quick reaction force where if they called us, 
we would be ready to go anywhere in the world within uh, 72 hours. So we were just ready, waiting for a phone call. And uh, for us, the phone call didn't come until a couple of years later when my unit went to Afghanistan. Hmm. So you, you were in Afghanistan. I was not. I oh, did not, not go um, <coughs> because of the, the diabetes made me uh, non-deployable. So um, I had to stay home, stay back in the rear and take care of um, the families that were left behind. Hmm. Now you're married. Very happily. And the funny thing is I uh, met my wife. Now it's 30. She, she's known me almost 40 years. Yeah. Yeah, she knows me for uh, 40 years. And uh, she, we dated right before I joined the military. And I left and did what I did. And then I came back. And 30 years later, we uh, met. And now we're married with three beautiful children. And one of my boys, he's going to Coastal Carolina. He's going to be a marine biologist. Set my, 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 uh, my middle son, he's actually high honors in all his classes and then i got a nine-year-old daughter and she's kicking butt and playing softball so my kids got my wife's brain and my work ethic yeah they're well superseding your education oh yeah they're they're like way here you know <laughs> yeah they're way way more i mean like i said i i dropped out in, in ninth grade so i don't even have a uh a diploma or anything now i also read you were homeless at some point yeah, because what happened was I came home from the military and now me and my father, father, we don't we didn't get along. Um, he's my stepfather. Um, we didn't get along at all. And because of it, because I was a young punk and I it was all me, all, all my fault. Like I said, I take responsibility for everything. You know, he was working two jobs, getting up at 5 a.m. and working till midnight, just trying to put a food over, you know, a roof over our head and food on the table. And here I am laying around all day, getting drunk and staying out till all, all hours of the night until he had enough and he threw my ass out. And if you guys, I'm sure that uh, you've had a lot of great guests, but I'm the only guy you're ever going to talk to that I was so bad that they threw me out of the crack house. That's how bad I was. <laughs> so I lived, in, I lived in my truck for about uh, a year, year and a half. You had problem behavior. Oh, I, I was I was total opposite of what I am now. I was it was all about me. Um, anybody that I can screw over, anybody that I can take advantage of, that was me. I was the, you know, uh, I was the ultimate. Um, oh, I don't even know what to call it. I was I was just a badass kid and uh, and, and an adult until nine uh, eleven humbled me and. And the, and the guy that I went, the guy that woke up on September 11th was not the same guy that went to bed at, on September 11th. So that just, it, that morning just changed my whole life and perspective and trajectory of my life. You know, going back to what I had said, you know, before we kind of started here was, uh, uh, I want to thank you for your service, right? Now, we can redirect that, though. I want to thank you for your service. I want to thank you for what you do today, because, you know, this is this is the stuff that um, I think is very, very important. You know, I mean, we've got a lot of people here in the United States that are suffering. 
I mean, you know, suicide rate is just unbelievable, you know, overdose, um, you know, with, uh, you know, drug overdoses are just crazy. And, um, and so the service that you're providing today is, is that's, I want to thank you for that. Thank you. And if you guys are watching this, um, I just, I interviewed somebody that's in, they're in the mental health industry also, and they're saying that on average, just on average in the United States, children from the ages of eight to 18 are 5,000 children a day are attempting suicide in the United States every day from ages of eight to 18. So if they're sick, just think how bad the parents are. So I think once we start getting healthy, then we can change the world, but we have to get healthy first before we can get our kids healthy. I know you, you may not have a definitive answer on this, but, you know, if we were to look at that rate of kids, you know, with their suicide, where do you think that's stemming from? What do you, what do you think's happening? Um, well, first of all, you know, being kids, okay, so we were, while we're watching this, we're going to be in a, um, we're still in COVID. So I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, being lonely. I mean, there's only so much you can do with a six by eight inch screen. You know, you miss being with your friends, you miss going out and doing things. But I also think that people that are on, you know, kids that are on social media, you know, a lot of them are getting bullied or getting picked on, or they're just looking at people that are on, you know, because on social media, 90% of the people, they're always looking their best. They're always having their best day. They're always, they're driving in Lambos. They're, you know, they're taking pictures in mansions. Those are what are getting popular and getting all the likes. And it's not real life. So a lot of people are getting, you know, they're feeling down and depressed because they're not life is, they're not, their life is not like the Kardashians, you know? So I think a lot of kids are feeling that, you know, they're feeling inadequate because they're looking up to people that have things that they don't have. So I think social media can be doing it. You know, a lot more people are worried about getting likes than they are about building real relationships. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, I think you know, something important for people to think about, I mean, even looking at the Kardashians, you know, <laughs> you see them on TV, that's not their real life. You know, they've got problems. They've got all the stuff that you're not going to see, you know, that, that aren't going to be on there. You know, the other thing too, like, you know, like we look at COVID in the grand scheme of things, this is a small part of our life, you know, um, especially if, you know, if you're young, I mean, if you're 16 years old, you got a whole life ahead of you, you know, it's just, we got to kind of figure out a way. The other thing I think is so important is, um, you know, and especially you go back to the bullying and things is, is self-esteem, you know, teaching self-esteem, you know, as a, you know, parents, can obviously esteem their kids, you know, when they're really young because they don't know how to do it themselves, but then teaching kids about self-esteem, learning to love ourselves, learning to care about ourselves, getting to that place where I don't care what people think about me, you know, that's, and that's obviously a tough place to get to for young people. I am there today though. I don't give a fuck what people think about me. <laughs> you know, like, it's like I grew up, you know, my father left when I was three months old and my mother was an addict. Um, she's clean now, by the way, for like 27 years. So thank God for that. 
but I don't ever remember her putting her arms around me and telling her, telling her, uh, telling me she loved me. So I think a lot of parents now they should take that time to put their arms around their kids, let them know that they're loved and they're cared about. Cause uh, you know, I, they say that, you know, for women that when they get older, even guys, when they get older and they become promiscuous, it's because the love that they did not get mm-hmm. when they were young children, you know, even my boys, you know, I still hug and kiss my boys, even though one is 18 and one is 16, they're still getting hugs and kisses from me just to let them know that they're loved and they're appreciated. And that's where the self-esteem comes from is because w- once you know that you're loved and appreciated, then you don't have to go outside worrying about so much about being loved and appreciated. Uh, I want to throw this at you real quick. Is um, is there something that you want to talk about real quick that, that I haven't brought up? Obviously, you see me wearing a hat. And there's a reason for that. Uh, it's not because I'm going bald or anything like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just shaved my head. I looked like Patrick Swayze last week. Um, but the reason why, if you, like I ask everybody, will you allow me to wear a hat on your show and talk about it? And if they say no, I won't even come on the show. I've actually turned down a top five podcast in the world because they wouldn't let me. And the reason why is um, about six years ago when I started helping veterans and people struggling with PTSD, me and my wife went to go see uh, American Sniper. And I don't know if you guys ever seen it. If you haven't, check it out. Gentleman's name was Chris Kyle. He was called the American Sniper. And I got so emotional in that movie theater. Um, I got home. I, uh, I got in touch with Chris Kyle's wife. I said, you're, what you did, what your husband did really affected me. And I help people that are struggling with PTSD. And from now on, I'm going to wear a hat in honor of Chris, just to let people to talk about Chris's story. You know, he got killed helping somebody that was struggling with PTSD. But it's more of a symbolism that there are people out there like myself, like you, you know, like some of my friends, they're willing to up to give their life to help somebody else that's struggling with PTSD addiction. So that's why I wear the hat in honor of Chris. And that's why something that I talk about that there's always somebody out there like me and you that are willing to help somebody else. If there's something you want to say to people out there that are struggling, Uh, just don't give up. Um, Make sure that, you know, sometimes in recovery, Um, The hardest thing to do is the heaviest thing to do is pick up a telephone. If you want to get in touch with me, all my coaching is free. I don't charge anybody anything ever, 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 ever free, 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 free. So just go, go. If you want to find out, go to hashtag the comeback coach and it'll come up on all my social media, everything that I do. I want to thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate this. This is, this is my way of, you know, paying it forward so i'm thankful for you now i gotta have you come on my show and talk about your book let's do it and i want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of high wall clean keep getting high but let's do it clean thanks